Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. For the past 240 weeks, the National Parks Traveler has brought you weekly podcasts examining life, news, and exploration of the national park system. It's been a long-running series that has never lacked for topics. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at The Traveler. We hope you found these episodes as informative and interesting as we have. For this week's show, we're diving into shows from past years to bring you two that we think you'll find fascinating. One revolves around the question of whether a gun can keep you safe from bears in the backcountry of national parks. I discussed that topic with Tom Smith, a professor of wildlife sciences at Brigham Young University and a member of the National Rifle Association. In the second part of the show, we look back at Lynn Riddick's journey underground at Mammoth Cave National Park. We'll be back in a minute with the shows. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at vrpfoundation.org. How best can you protect yourself against a bear attack when hiking or backpacking in the backcountry of the national park system? It's a question that comes up from time to time, particularly after there's been a mauling. More than a few comments are made that some won't go into the bear habitat unless they're packing a firearm. The National Park Service, however, urges backcountry travelers to carry bear spray. And in Yellowstone National Park, they'll even show you how to spray a charging bear. A bear made out of plywood, that is. To explore the issue of guns in the backcountry, we've invited Dr. Tom Smith, a Brigham Young University professor who long has studied this topic to join us. His research interests include wildlife-human conflicts, 
particularly involving all three species of North American bears. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Yeah, good morning. Now, as I mentioned, you long have studied bears and human interactions in uh, backcountry situations. And um, one thing I noticed in reading some of the papers that you've authored over the years is that 84% of handgun users and 76% of long gun or rifle users, shotguns, etc., are successful in defending themselves against a bear attack. Doesn't that indicate that firearms are, are great tools for defense against bears? Well, as long as you're not in that 24% overall, um, it's, it's a good thing. And obviously, firearms have and will continue to protect people. I think the key is that, and that's the point of the paper, is one should undergo some heavy introspection before they go into bear country as to whether or not they think they're going to be competent with a firearm under duress. So I'm not by any means anti-firearm. I just think that the vast majority of people would be better served by just using a non-lethal. And if you want to talk more about that, we can. Uh, the reasons why I think that's the case, but um, I, I certainly don't rule them out. I've carried one many years myself. Yeah, I believe you, you've mentioned to me um, previously that uh, you're an NRA member as well as an instructor. That's correct. Yeah, I teach Oh, about 40 to 50 students a year at the university and the safe use of firearms. And the one th interesting point you mentioned um, was that knowing how to aim and shoot a firearm is, is one thing, and knowing how to aim and, and shoot and keep your composure while being charged by a grizzly bear is totally something else. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I talk to people, and, and respectfully so, but they'll say, yeah, I, I, I own guns, and I, it's a hobby of mine. And I'll ask them how competent they are. And they say, well, down at the range, I, I can rank among the best. And that's all good. Uh, but, you know, protecting yourself against an aggressive bear would be quite a different experience than being at a shooting range. You could kind of imagine it would be a place where the targets come down off of the rack and they chase you around. And <laughs> if they catch you, you get mauled. So it's not exactly like standing with a gun rack, a bench rack taking shots at a bullseye. And it's kind of hard to, to duplicate that uh, experience in a, in a shooting range. Well, it is. And in a recent paper I published looking at 135 years of bear-human conflict in Alaska, over 700 cases, um, the one thing that stood out when you analyze those, the vast majority of instances, the person first is made aware of the bear's presence at, any, at about 5 meters or 15 feet roughly. So that means, let's say, let's say you're a hunter and most people, you know, hike to the place that they're going to hunt, right? They don't just get out of their, their, um, you know, their vehicle or whatever, and have the gun in a field ready position with one in the chamber and the safety off. That's just not a safe thing to do. So they've got it over their shoulder, especially if they're hefting around some of these veritable cannons, you know, three Winchester, 300, 375s, 308s, 30-odd. I mean, these are big, heavy guns. So they got it over their shoulder. Now, picture at 15 feet, all of a sudden you've rounded a bend, there's a grizzly, and you've got to get that off your shoulder to your shoulder, you know, put one in the chamber safety. I mean, it's not going to happen, and that is very commonly what happens. So it's, it's not an ideal tool for close encounters, 
And for that reason, I think we see a different set of statistics under uh, for the use and deployment of bear spray. It's been much more successful in defending people. Yeah, well, we'll get into that in a moment. In your studies and the, the research that you've conducted and, and data that you've looked through, were you able to differentiate between hunters who were attacked and, and hikers or backpackers who were attacked? Well, it's an interesting kind of a question you ask because some of the uh, the studies that predated me, they just lumped them all as either what, you know, what were you doing? I was a hunter. I was a camper. I was, you know, I was a hiker. I was doing research or something. But the reason I'm explaining this is a hunter in a campsite walking, let's say down to take a look at an overlook. That's not a hunter. That's a hiker. And uh, similarly, a hunter that has uh, a gun over their shoulder trying to get to the place to, you know, to, to start their stock. That's not a hunter, that's a hiker. So when you break that out into what I call primary and secondary purpose for, you know, or uh, primary and secondary activity that they're in, you see that the vast majority of, of people involved in bear attacks in Alaska anyway are, are hunters. But when it comes right down to it, it they're really the, the, the greater group that actually encounters the bear are hikers, many of which are carrying guns. So I don't know that it matters why they're in the backcountry. It's what they're doing at the time they interact with the bear. And to the bear, I mean, these are important things. Let's say, you know, I'll throw this number out. Stephen Herrera, who's a a colleague and friend who's uh, co-authored on uh, quite a few of these papers with me, neither he nor I, for all of North America, we don't have a single incident where two people calmly stood their ground and an angry bear touched them. Not once. And I'll have people say, oh, no, no, I, I remember, you know, in Alaska, the National Outdoor Leadership School had five, you know, kids in a group that all got attacked. Well, they were running like scared chickens. That's not, that's not a group of five. And so what happens is when you're hiking on a trail, let's say in Yellowstone, and my advice is in bear country, if you can have a conversation with somebody, that's about, the, that's about as far apart as you want to get. Otherwise, your group of, let's say, three good friends becomes three groups of one. And that lends itself to another insight, which is the vast majority of people involved in these bear attacks, this is continent-wide, are soloists, single people. And when it becomes a two people, the numbers are less than one would expect for their representation. So the point of all this is uh, probably the simplest thing you can do is when you need to is keep close to your hiking companions because just the presence of two or more people in of itself, guns or no guns, bear spray or no bear spray, that's a deterrent. And I think it's just a, playing the odds. I think the animals are encouraged when it's a one-on-one scrap, but when it's two or more, they definitely back down. Yeah, back yeah. down. The reason I asked uh, the difference between uh, whether the data showed any difference between hikers and hunters is because hunters many times will be um, trying to move quietly through the backcountry because they're stalking prey and looking for prey and they don't want to scare it off, whereas a hiker is just kind of enjoying the day. Yeah, no, that's right. So I think that uh, hunters are the single, like I said, the single largest uh, group of people involved in it's because they do everything, quote unquote, wrong in bear country. They're solo their camouflage. They're trying not to telegraph their presence to the surrounding country, which, which obviously, if you do that, then you're alerting bears. You're not going to surprise them. So yeah, you're right. Uh, hunters do get involved disproportionately in these kind of in these kind of uh, conflicts. 
And, and what you said about um, solo hikers and uh, increasing your your numbers by just one other hiker, um, well taken. Um, the, the last two maulings in Yellowstone that I recall, uh, one was a, a solo hiker who was going through... Uh, bear habitat, well-known bear habitat up on Mary Mountain in Yellowstone. And uh, the uh, other mauling that comes to mind was a, a couple that was walking out um, down a trail. And uh, I guess the husband tried to flee and the, the bear chased him down and, and killed him, leaving his spouse alone. So n- numbers definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. You know, when I looked at about 700 incidents, I could query, I've done this, in fact, another effort I'm doing with uh, Kerry Gunter, who's the bear biologist for Yellowstone, um, we're kind of, we've taken a hard look, I've taken a hard look at the kind of messaging that's out there for be safe, you know, how to be safe in bear country. And quite a few of those as a bear biologist, now I've been studying bears for about 27 years. I, I raise my head up and go, what the, where did that come from? Why are people saying that? And so I've taken an approach where I've looked at it from the data. Okay, what happened when people ran from bears? You know, we tell them not to do it. That 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 seems solid. And, and indeed, like you said, they I think I had 61 cases where people's choice was of all the things they could have done, they chose to run. And I think in 54 of them, the bear instantly uh, chased them down. And its response was to chase and take them out. So I think you don't need any uh, high-powered statistics to say that's that's not a good thing to do. So I think it's important, like you say, to hike as a group, stay as a group. And but but you know I've done a lot of solo work myself, and there's things you can do to make that safe too. But it does put you in a different category when it comes to one-on-one with a bear. You better be a little more prepared and much more aware than you would be otherwise. What would you recommend for going out solo hiking in bear habitat? Well, I think the simple thing, you know, one thing in looking at bear messaging over the years, one thing that I have not seen, although Yellowstone's really got on board, they have, is number one, you have no business, in my opinion, being off the road onto a trail if you don't have a way to deter a bear. So you need to have some way to do it. And as you probably read from one of my papers, from 71 cases of bear spray used in Alaska, it was uh, 98% effective. And I have a follow-up paper that we're doing on polar bears, and it's the same. It's 16 out of 17 cases the bear was turned. And in the one case with the polar bear, it was because of high wind, you know, intercepted the spray and that. But but the point is, always carry a deterrent. Um, the other one is, if you're not going to have somebody with you, then you need to make noise. And I say make noise appropriately. You know, I've, I have I was in the back country of Katmai National Park once, and there's some guy down the meadow by himself. He was singing opera. And I thought, you know, I, <laughs> I want to go down and bear spray him. It was just destroying, just destroying the solitude. You know, we were watching a pack of wolves and all of a sudden their heads all turn and they ran. <laughs> it's like, okay, I get it. I get it. But, you know, we, we do want to enjoy Yellowstone. We do want to enjoy these places. So when I say make noise appropriately, you don't have to be singing at the top of your lungs in a place that, that, you have good sight distance and, and, you know, there's good visibility or if there's other people around. So, but as a soloist, I think you have to have that bear spray, have it ready and really have uh, pay a lot of attention. And like I said, make noise appropriately. That's, that's about all you can do really to give them a heads up that you're coming, you know. Dr. Smith, in your, your studies, it seems, um, obviously a lot of your focus has been on, um, 
brown bears, grizzly bears, polar bears. What about black bears? I mean, we've long heard that black bears are... uh, the only time they're going to attack you is when they're hungry and you should definitely fight back. It's not so much you've spooked them and they're going to come attack you. Um, are we seeing more aggressive black bears these days? No, I, I think not. I think what we're seeing, and um, it's really strange, but it holds true across the continent and over in India as well, where I'm studying sloth bears over there. <clears throat> the more people there are in an area, the number of bear-human conflicts tracks it perfectly. So it's not like bears are getting grouchier or less tolerant. There's just more people. And when we did the paper back in, oh gosh, what was it? 2011 or 2009? I can't remember on black bear inflicted fatalities in North America. One of those statistics was to show that that's exactly the case. Now, interestingly here in Utah, where I am now, quite a different mindset than Alaska. Here, the average person looks at black bears like a 300-pound chipmunk. Um, they don't seem to have a lot of healthy respect for them. And, you know, in 2007, uh, the first uh, black bear-inflicted fatality occurred here. But the point about it is people will say, oh, these black bears, you know, they don't want anything to do with you, blah, blah, blah. You hear that a lot. Well, I don't really care about the ones that don't want anything to do with you, but I can promise you out of the three or 4,000 black bears in Utah – and whatever there is in Colorado and Montana and as we go around state, there will be a few bears that you don't have to invoke. Uh, they're old, they're sick, they had a bad season of you know food, foraging, or anything. They're just predatory, and they, if they see a human and they think they can take the human, they will absolutely try to take the human. And so whenever you see a black bear, I treat them typically, you know, I leave them alone. I mean, if, if, if you know, who wants to just go around to disturbing nature. So if I see a black bear on a hillside, I let it go. If it's on the trail ahead of me, I just climb up off the trail and let it pass. Generally, they're just trying to go somewhere. I've had plenty of interactions, but sometimes, you know, I'll be in a place where they wander out and they're coming obviously towards me, treat them like a big dog, you know, and just kind of run at them aggressively, clap on my hands. But believe me, I got my bear spray on my side and 99% of the time they will turn and run. If they don't, now you got a problem. And that's a bear you're going to have to deal with because that's not your normal behavioral profile. And if you have that kind of bear that's clearly not startled and it is not going to go away, you better have a deterrent because even a 100-pound bear could take a human down. And we've seen that in Alaska where big, strong men, you know, 200 pounds and just muscle and sinew got attacked by the one, a guy named Stephen Routh, the 110-pound bear, he guessed. When it stood, it was eye to eye to him. He said the first thing that entered his mind was he was totally shocked how strong that animal was, and he could not break its grip. And he said he he guessed it weighed 110 pounds, and it was lucky that he's still alive. But the point is, that bear acted very unusual. He startled it in the brush. His first thought was, oh, thank goodness, it's just a black bear. Mm -hmm. Then it stopped for a second, it looked at him, and it lunged. And that is very unusual behavior. Now, that's just, I mean, it's just like humans. Most of us are pretty nice people, but, but there's those few, you know, on the fringe and we all stare, we all profile them. It's like, they're kind of not acting normal the way they look at you, the way they're moving. We do the same thing with these bears. If they don't run, they don't get out of there. If they're frontally oriented and they start moving towards you, you better have a way to convince them to go somewhere else. So that's, that's the big difference. Yeah. No, I wanted to raise that question because of, uh, 
uh, Shenandoah and Great Smoky Mountains National Parks. Um, obviously, a lot of black bears in both those parks. And uh, uh, last fall, I believe it was, um, there was uh, an incident between a, a bear and a, a ginseng hunter. And the, the, the question was whether the bear had killed the uh, ginseng poacher hunter or whether um, drugs had killed the hunter and the bear came upon him after the fact. I don't know if yeah, you've uh, heard that. that. And, and it's, it's kind of like that messy incident on the elk hunter with bear spray up in, um, you know, last fall there on the near the National Elk Refuge there in Jackson, Wyoming. You know, the bear spray naysayers, and heaven only knows what their motivation is. There, you'll you'll see articles by them. You know, don't drop your guns, hang on to the bear spray. It's like, and then they'll put an article out there like, see it failed this guy, and nobody knows what happened. He was by himself. He obviously tried to deploy a spray, you know, but we just don't know. And the other one that was interesting was the Todd Orr incident last year in Montana where the poor man got attacked twice. And he, you know, he put out a, you know, a spray, uh, uh, you know, big cloud of bear spray and the bear came at him. And But then when you read the incident, I haven't talked to him directly, but he was on the ground when the bear made contact. What the heck? You should never do that. If you have a can of spray, it sprays seven seconds, so or five to seven, depending on the brand. But the point is, you spray that stuff until that bear's, you know, sucking on the end of your can. And people go, I mean, I've worked a lot with this spray. It's just a physiological response, involuntary closure of the eyes, uh, constriction of the bronchioles. They can't breathe. Believe me, you get it in their face good enough. So what Orr did, in my opinion, he put out a burst and this grizzly was coming. He just laid down, fearing the imminent contact. Now, had he just stood up there and emptied the can, I think it would have come out differently, but we'll never know. So anyway, I guess I'm going off on a tangent, but I think that we, we never really know, as you're intimating there. Anyway, sometimes sometimes people just die and then bear scavenge, and then, you know, it's a it's a, considered a bear predatory attack when maybe it, it never was but but again that's speculation we don't know sure sure have you um um seen any data or, or studied it yourself whether um since um national park visitors were allowed to bring firearms into the parks um this goes back i don't know five or six eight years ago um since congress allowed it whether there has been an increase in incidents between uh firearm carriers and and bears or other wildlife well, I know, well, I remember when the when the rule first was put into place, there was um, you know, I was working for the park service and a woman in Glacier gunned down a deer because she said it was being aggressive. And then there was a number of other such things that happened where people felt threatened but not with bears. I haven't seen a thing with bears. And I was talking to Carrie Gunther up there in Yellowstone last fall and they've not had a, a situation where somebody defended themselves against the bear with a gun in the park. But what's ironic, you can go into Yosemite and uh, you can have, you know, a gun on each hip and walk around. That's legal, but you can't carry bear spray. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. That is that is an odd regulation that the park has there. Talking about bear spray, I mean, um, you go into a store and it's going to cost 40 or $45. And, and some people might say, well, gosh, that's an awful lot of money to spend for an afternoon hike in the park or a three-day backpack uh, trip in the park. 
how long um, does bear spray last? I mean, I, I know I've got a couple cans here, and uh, I don't I haven't checked the expiration date, but we're going up to Yellowstone this summer, and I'm sure other people have the same question. You know, does the expiration date on a can hard and fast, or, or any any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we did that. We looked at that for polar bears. Well, actually, I looked at it. I I got several hundred cans from the Forest Service cans that had never been fired. And uh, they never been fired. We weighed them all, and then we plotted their weight against their age. And what you could see was there was a one to two percent reduction in weight per year on these cans. And so, in talking to the bear spray company, I said, "What what is going on there?" And I talked to um, a fellow there from Counter Assault, and he said, "Well, we've we we have uh, got the. In fact, my number was exactly the same as yours. It was theirs. It was one point nine percent per year loss." He said, "Because the propellant, which was C one thirty four A, it's been changed now by Counter Assault, but the propellant, he said, is a kind of a sneaky molecule when it gets around the seal. Just the propellant, not the not the hot stuff. So." The propellant can go down. Now, the active ingredient, oleoresin capsaicin, uh, capsicum, I'm sorry, which contains capsaicin, which is the active ingredient, uh, they don't degrade over time. I was told that very clearly. So a 20-year-old can still, given that it's never been fired and it's got, uh, you know, it's, it's still pretty heavy, um, that's going to fire just fine. So anyway, I think it's an issue you can imagine in this world, uh, litigious world, they put a four-year expiration on it, but at year five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, it's still good. And I know the companies aren't going to tell you that, you know, and, and I understand that, it's, uh, but, but I, the truth is it's just propellant that's going down. Now, if you sat a can on a counter and you just slapped it or kind of bounced your fist off the trigger and it did one half you know quarter of a second burst kind of a like that that's Mm -hmm. the same amount of propellant that's gone in 10 years so it's not much and so um i think between me and you um you know i i have two things one i wouldn't toss it on the expiration date myself uh just because of that but on the other hand you know let's not be too cheap about how important it is to protect ourselves from bears um so there's kind of a balance there right Sure, sure. And um, as you mentioned, with uh, guns, you have to know how to use them and fire them and and get ready. You have to know how to use bear spray. It's not a uh, panacea that you can just go out there. You have to uh, pay attention to which way the wind is blowing and uh, the bear charge distance and that sort of thing. Well, you know, we did did computer modeling and we actually did modeling uh, actual field tests with these things. One One of the reasons we looked at this was... Bear spray is not a commonly used and commonly relied upon deterrent for bears in the Arctic. So seeing some high-profile deaths last summer, you might recall, two men were killed by bears. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were defenseless, didn't have any way to deal with bears. Really sad stories. The one, they were out egg gathering, and the the man sent his kids away as he stood between them and the bear, and the polar bear just took him out. You know, so... I think that that's really sad because, in my opinion, just a $40 can of bear spray, he'd still be around. And so we wanted to look at the three reasons why northern peoples object to it. And I'll just make it very short here. One is some people believe that there's nothing you're putting into a 
you know, a, a thin canister like that that's going to stop a thousand pound aggressive determined bear. Number two, the wind will disable it. Number three, the cold renders it useless. So I've run studies on all that, and uh, basically we have a paper coming out that that is to encourage them that you know even at forty below zero, the spray will go uh, four meters. Um, it doesn't atomize well, but you paint their face, and you will stop them. And so, uh, and same with the wind, um, it comes out of the can about seventy miles an hour, and. Sure. When you get a here, here's the thing about wind. It, there's a fifty-fifty chance, right? It can be in your face or from behind, mm-hmm. or or from the from the side. So it's not always. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the odds aren't always against you. Sometimes it can help. But but the other thing is, it's got such a strong push. It, it very rarely. I mean, if nothing else, when the bear gets close enough, you will be dumping it onto their face, and they will get burned. And somebody said, well, that's, I don't want to do that. Well, I mean, that beats the alternative, right? Which is doing nothing. And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's an interesting other little statistic we found is that in 90% of instances where a person was down and, the, and another person came to the rescue and sprayed the bear in the face, it stopped the mauling. Now, the kind of low-voiced other 10% was they got mauled themselves. Which is not unfortunate, but it, but it, but my point is, at close range, spraying a bear, it's a problem. So it's not what you and I want to do, but we've seen plenty of times at close range, it, it will get them. So, you know, I think that I don't, I can't even remember your original question. <laughs> I've gone down a, a path here, but I think it's all relevant that, that that the spray is very effective, and and oh, it was about the wind, and the wind does have an effect. But one other thing I will say. I get a little frustrated with people who overburden the public with, oh, make sure, you know, you, you, you know, you carry the bear spray in a certain place, which I think is fine that it can't be in a pack. But mm-hmm. then they say, you know, hold it at arm's length, cock it slightly down, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I get all that, but you, you give people too much stuff and it just, they just kind of melt down under pressure. So I think it's important just point it and spray it you know, at a distance, it's good out about 20, 25 feet. When the bear crosses that line, start spraying them, you know, and, and, uh, don't get too hung up on all that other stuff. I just, and, and, and I hear people say, make sure the wind's in, in your favor. Are you kidding me? What? You're going to put your finger in the air and then tell the bear to stop for a second while you reposition. Come on. That's, that's nonsense. People don't have time to do that. You're going to spray the bear. You're not going to, now, if it's a slowly unfolding thing, maybe you could massage the circumstance. But generally, that I, I file that under uh, well-intentioned but meaningless, useless information. Right, right. No, it sounds like bear spray is a lot more effective than a gun. Well, I mean, again, it depends on you. Let's say you're a SEAL team guy and <laughs> or whatever, and you're you're trained for combat. I mean. I think guns are good, but you got to realize for the average person, that kind of quick deployment, accurate shooting and all that stuff. I mean, that's difficult And not to mention the fact that wounding a bear is not a good thing. Now, one statistic that if you noticed in the paper I sent you, if you just looked at all these people carrying guns, there was 444 people involved, half of those people. So they all had guns. Half of them never got to pull the gun out and use it for a whole lot of reasons. The gun was never used. Now, 
some have said, well, that's not fair I to include those. Well, yeah, it is fair because the gun is a deterrent in of itself. It's kind of a pain, right? Let's sure. say you hike into some backcountry area. You're not going to be walking around your campsite with a gun while you're pitching a tent and cooking dinner. You will with bear spray on your hip. And there's been a few people that looked up and there's a bear right there that's wandered into their campsite and the gun's, you know, somewhere else. So my point being, though, when you looked at the injury statistics for those people who did not use the gun versus those who did, there is no statistical difference between the two groups. So we could talk about that for a half hour, what that means, but I'm not seeing guns. The, the big issue here is we're talking statistics. We're pooling it together on an individual basis. It's very important that you look at your abilities and if you're competent, then a gun may be a good thing for you. But why not carry bear spray as well? Because there's times when, you know, your firearm's not handy or you don't want to hike with it in your arms, you know, in your hands and all that stuff. There's no reason. I mean, it's not an either or thing. You could carry both if, if, if that's what you want to do. One other thing I have to throw in there, if I might, sure. is we had a number of instances which, oh, my goodness, I, I never even thought about this. It was people who, when push came to shove, they couldn't bring themselves to shoot a living animal. I mean, admittedly, it's a bear and their life's threatened. They couldn't do it. And the bears just took them out or they took their friends out. That was another one. On a government, uh, uh, a couple couple of these in Alaska, I interviewed the people where, you know, they're USGS, they're out doing geological stuff, and somebody carried the gun. Well, it turns out in this one case, the gun bearer, was a person that objected to injuring anything. And they find that out when the bears are, he goes, Oh, I can't shoot a bear. <laughs> He's got the gun. So they said, well, shoot warning shots. So he blam, blam, blam. And the bear didn't do anything, which in 30, uh, let's see, 70% of the cases, the bears don't do anything with the warning shot. So now he was down to one bullet left. And that's all he had. And they go, how many reload the gun? He goes, well, I only brought four because <laughs> they didn't expect to have a problem. So he shot three in the ground. Long story short, he still wouldn't shoot until he was on top of this colleague of mine mauling her. He angled in and took the bear's head off from the side. It was a 30 odd six. I mean, jeez. And, and so it's, that's another problem is people don't want to squeeze that trigger because they don't want to kill the animal. Part of the reason, too, in places all throughout the North America, if you kill that thing, you're going to have to skin it. You're going to have to turn in the hide, the skull, and the claws. Who wants to do that? Also, you're going to be moron of the week in the newspaper. Oh, you know, idiot shot this bear, you know, killed this bear. So people don't want to do it. And that reluctance to deploy the deterrent, that gives the bear a definite advantage. I saw that in a lot of places. Now, there's a lot of people, me included. My mind's made up. If a bear crosses a certain line, it's getting some sort of deterrent. Sure. But I've done, I've done hundreds of times with big, big brown bears up there in Katmai, I mean, you know, thousand pound bears. And so I'm pretty comfortable with that. But your average person, I don't know. I, I think that's a really die. So you factor in all that stuff. I can see why guns haven't had as good of overall success as bear spray. You know, with a non-lethal, you got a bear wandering your way. You're not killing it. You're just saying, hey, get out of here. Right. Spray that thing. I mean, you know, you're not going to kill it. It's going to be incapacitated for a few minutes, but that's way different judgment than pulling the trigger. I didn't realize that um, if you killed a, a, a grizzly bear or maybe even a black bear that you had to skin it 
and pack out the hide, the skull, and the claws. Is that um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife regulation? That's Alaska, and that's the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Here in Utah, I don't know what they do if you shot a bear. I don't know that they require you to do that, but in Alaska they do. So that that when I've you know I digress a little bit there. That Alaska is where I've done most of my work. But but here's the key thing: the bears in Alaska I don't think are one whit different than the bears down here. Sure. So it's not like you know we have seven confirmed black bear inflicted fatalities in Alaska. And only one in Utah. Well, but look at the number. We got what three or four thousand bears here up there. They've got like a hundred and thirty thousand, hundred and forty thousand. They don't know. So it's just a numbers game. But so I, I guess what I'm saying is, up there, there's a lot more bear human conflict because there's a lot more bears, and they just, they're trying to make people think twice where they just blow bears away. We, we'd have to look at that and see what the deal is here. If you shot when you yell, I'm sure they're not going to make you do it, but. Up there, that's another reason why people are very reluctant to kill a bear. Now, I noticed that you've also done um, some research with mountain sheep or mountain goats. Uh, I would assume that uh, bear spray works on them, too. As you you might recall, a few years back, there was a a sad situation in Olympic National Park where a a big uh, mountain goat killed a hiker. Would bear spray have worked there? Oh, yeah. It, It works on all these guys. It works on everybody. In fact, my daughters all have a can they set by their nightstand. So if somebody comes in the house at night, they can spray them. And, you know, and, and why? Well, how many times have we heard of people shooting their own family members that come in late, you know, and stuff, but you spray them, they're going to be screaming, but at least they're not dead. Yeah. And uh, so it works on mammals very well. We've yeah. sprayed birds too. It works on them. <laughs> <laughs> Can't remember any attacks, fatal attacks by uh, hawks. or. <laughs> uh, no, but sometimes you want to get them out of your... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> out of your chicken coop, <laughs> raptors. Yeah. But but the thing is, yeah, it works on those. And moose definitely works on them. I've had uh, friends that have sprayed moose. And, it's, you know, where they were doing, you know, racing around a tree and the moose is trying to stomp them. This is up in Alaska. And they let them get a face full of bear spray. And down here, same with cougars. Um, Dr. David Madsen, formerly a Yellowstone biologist that worked with cougars here, in on the Colorado Plateau, he he um, recommended bear spray as well for uh, mountain lions. Although they're kind of a you know ambush predator, so you don't have much time to see them coming. I suspect. Sure, sure. That's good to know. We've been talking today with Dr. Tom Smith, a Brigham Young University professor who long has studied uh, wildlife and human conflicts in the backcountry uh, involving all three species of North American bears. Tom, I appreciate you joining us today, and um, let's be safe out there this summer. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. Thank you, Kurt. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Parks, cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Maximize your savings with Interior Federal Credit Union. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. 
Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. I have to admit I was a little apprehensive as I descended the steeply sloped paved walkway to the cave entrance for the River Styx tour. My traveling companions, including my pal Ginny Vining, and about 25 other park visitors kept going down, down, down. And we hadn't even entered the cave yet. All I knew was that there was way more descending to go, including some 600 steps once inside the cave. And then of course, the journey back up. Park Ranger Haley Hoffman's pre-tour warnings allowed a couple of opportunities to bail. You all know yourselves better than we do, but if you have heart or breathing problems, trouble walking long distances, climbing stairs, any health concerns that you think will limit you from doing this tour to the best of your ability, if you have any concerns about fat man's misery, maybe a little bit of claustrophobia, anything like that, feel free to go up here to Ranger Chris right now while I'm talking if you have any concerns like that. Or to me, once we start walking, we definitely want to make sure that everybody's in a, a part of the group where they feel comfortable when we're going through places. And like I said, There's no entrance fee to Mammoth Cave National Park, but there are fees for the cave tours, ranging from $8 to $22 for adults and $4 to $16 for seniors and youth. The hard part is choosing, as there are quite a few. Ginny scheduled the River Styx tour first, so as to tackle the more physically challenging one the first day. Haley, along with her park ranger colleague Chris Clark, led us into the semi-darkness, and our geology lesson began. Down in there, but one thing, we're standing around in this valley out here. Notice how we've been walking down this hill. We're gonna walk inside the cave here in a second into that limestone. But on top of all this limestone sits sandstone rock. And it plays a very important role in Mammoth Cave. And we'll talk about it once we get down in there. But I just want you to kind of pay attention to the landscape kind of as we're walking down the hill here and just here in a minute. You're gonna feel that cold air and it's gonna feel glorious. So let's go get to it. Right, it's so hot out here. Kind of fun entering the cave for the first time in the trickle of water coming from the ledge overhead. So it's interesting, you know, all that cool air that we felt yesterday yeah. coming from the cave, and now you come into the cave and you feel like this breeze, a pretty strong breeze of cold air. It's really nice. But it's, it's not too cold so far. I'm sure if we go down further, well, we are prepared for 56 degree temperatures, is that what they said? Yes. This tour covers two and a half miles inside the cave with 360 feet of elevation change. 
As we pass through tunnels and formations, wide caverns and narrow passageways, our guides made frequent stops to explain the geological processes behind the formation of the cave. But right now I want to introduce the rock that, we're, that is around us right now. We're going to start with the, the way back in time, the geological history of Mammoth Cave. We have to go way, way far back. Over 300 million years ago, there was a warm, shallow sea over this area of Kentucky. It was a lot more tropical, right, than what we're experiencing today. There wasn't all this forest and all this stuff everywhere. And in that sea, you had all types of creatures, sharks, fish, plant life, corals. You had a lot of things with shells, right? And when those things died, they started to float down to the bottom of that sea. The calcium precipitates out, and over time, with intense pressure, packs down to form the many layers of limestone that make up Mammoth Cave that are surrounding us right now, about 600 feet of it in this area of Kentucky. So very old limestone that we're in right now. And we're going to pass through three layers. Now there's layers inside of layers inside of layers. Mammoth Cave is one of the world's most diverse cave ecosystems, containing some 130 forms of life. It's a solution cave, formed over millions of years as acidic rainwater seeped and continues to seep through the cracks in the rock above. Ooh, we talked about where the rock came from. Now we're going to talk about how the cave got here. Right, so you have all this limestone rock. You have that sandstone sitting on top of it. Things start to shift and change and move around over the next few million years. You start to get little tiny cracks in this limestone. So Mammoth Cave didn't start off 412 miles long, right? just like the Grand Canyon didn't start off in that big hole in the ground that we all know about today. And it took a lot of time. In geological terms, we're talking very, very long time. Right? So you have normal rainwater that comes down from the sky. As it's coming down, it picks up carbon dioxide, picks up that acidity, goes down through those sinkholes out around Mammoth Cave, inside Mammoth Cave. Did anybody come? Probably a lot of you came into the park from I-65. Right, the nice interstate, did you see any of those big bowl-shaped depressions out around you? There were some trees in the middle of them. Some of them were really tiny, some were just huge, kind of spanning the whole maybe farmland that you were driving by. That's how a lot of the water gets into Mammoth Cave, right? Those big bowl-shaped depressions, just like a drain at the bottom of each of one of them, just like the, your kitchen sink has a drain in it. So the water comes down through that dirt in the soil, picks up even more acidity, and it becomes carbonic acid. Sounds scary. Acid, we all hate that word. That just, you know, got like melting skin and all that sort of thing. Um, would any of you, you know, drink carbonic acid? Yes. Yeah, yeah right, you sure would. Because I'm sure some of you have it maybe once a day, maybe once a week if you're really good. Maybe never, right, if you're a really good human being, right? You don't want to ingest that stuff. But if you drink Coca-Cola, 7-Up, Mountain Dew, Dr. Pepper, even just the bubbly water, right? You look on the first ingredient, carbonated water. Because if they labeled it as carbonic acid, nobody would buy it ever again. It'd sit on the shelf forever. But that's what carved out Mammoth Cave, that carbonic acid, that water mixing with that carbon dioxide. It slowly starts to dissolve away this limestone rock. It's very soluble. Mammoth Cave's 412 miles with five distinct passageways squiggle above and below each other like noodles in a bowl. There are four fossil levels and a river level. We passed along a walkway above the underground river Styx, some 300 feet below the surface. Here the water is still working to lengthen the cave. It's an eerie feeling to look down at the dark foreboding water, hoping your feet don't slip. But alas, there are modern safety amenities at the ready. 
So I just love that we passed a life preserver. Uh, there's another one over there. Oh, that's fantastic. I don't know how they use those, though. Like, they get a big thing and, oh, God. It well, they're going to throw it down to you and then they'll right. figure out how to pull your carcass out. <laughs> Hopefully it's not a carcass at that point. One of the highlights of the tour, or should I say lowlights, was when Ranger Haley instructed us to turn off our battery-powered lanterns. All right, but go ahead and take that little green button on your lantern. Just go ahead and get, don't hold on to it. Just give it one quick press. <laughs> oh. Hello. Seriously creepy. All right, so if you wanted to know what all the cave system looks like, you're seeing it. Go ahead and wave your hand in front of your face. <laughs> it doesn't matter how long you are down in here, your eyes would never adjust to this. My traveling companions and I enjoyed two more cave tours while in the park, the Cleveland Avenue and Frozen Niagara Tours. They offered a close-up view of geological phenomena and carried us back to the time of the early explorers who ventured deep into cave passages despite the limitations of the era. But visitors would be remiss not to enjoy the wonders of the park that lie above the cave, 80 miles of hiking trails through eastern hardwood forests. We explored old churches and cemeteries that are final resting homes to family members who once owned property here. And the Green River Ferry, a curious thing. Looking somewhat like a miniature aircraft carrier, it's about as long as the river is wide, it doesn't hold very many cars, and it doesn't go very far, but it got Ginny and me to the other side. You know, another fun little part of our trip was when we crossed the Green River on the ferry, and not because it was a sensational experience, it was just unique. It was, I'd never been on a ferry that was just a three-car ferry that went across, I don't know, 40 feet of water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was yes. kind of fun. I love that. I and that's how you get to the uh, sort of the other side of the park. Is it's one way of doing it, um, a very convenient way. But the ferry, sometimes it doesn't run because the water level with the rain can. It's a very, um, very. It's variable. So if it, if it, if they have a situation where they don't think they can run the ferry, they just don't run it. So you have to call and find out if the ferry's running, uh, and they'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we, it was a very short ride. We just got on and. <laughs> three cars and they just moved just right across. It was such a, that was a very unique experience for me. I've been on ferries, but that was like the coolest sort of quick ferry. Yeah. <laughs> How long would you say it lasted? I think it was under a minute. <laughs> I know it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. You could count yeah. to like probably 25 and you're on the other side. <laughs> At night, we were treated to an amazing display of lightning bugs that rose up out of the dewy grass and forested areas, an abundance that I have not seen maybe since I was a kid. The evenings are also a good time to catch an informative ranger talk or two. Ranger Chris told us about the pre-National Park era when landowners hired cappers to do whatever they could to attract visitors to their cave and not their neighbors. People would roll into this area they would see this guy jump out, blow a whistle, and look like he was writing down your license plate number. You came back and said, what did I do wrong? 
Where are you going? I'm going over here to Mammoth Cave. Do not go there. All their guides have tuberculosis. Go to this cave instead. Or I'm going over to Diamond Caverns. Don't go there. They have had a terrible fire. There's nothing to see. His presentation also included the captivating story of Floyd Collins, a young man pinned for days by a boulder inside the cave. The nationwide publicity surrounding his rescue fueled support for Mammoth Cave becoming a national park. As Rangers Chris and Haley explained to me after the presentation, the park has lots of stories and they love telling them. Here we are, it's 8.30 at night mm -hmm. and you just finished your ranger talk, which was very informative, very enjoyable. Glad you enjoyed. Thank you. But you both were there at the one o'clock River Sticks tour that I went on. So it's kind of been a long day, right? <laughs> it has been. Is this typical? When did you start working? We start a little bit later when we have the night shifts like this. Uh, we start about 1230. We do two tours and have an evening program, but we have a little downtime. It's not too bad. A couple hours here and there to yep. take a break. Very enjoyable. So last night we came to the talk about the cave wars, and tonight was mostly about uh, Floyd and getting stuck in the cave, and yes, then also the robbery or the burglary or the <laughs> destruction of the cave that happened in 1999? 95. 95. Mm -hmm. So how do you select the topics of these ranger talks? I try to do it on something that I enjoy talking about. So you can I, pick whatever yeah, you want. Yeah, we we, there's a, thankfully with Mammoth Cave, there's a lot to choose from. And we're able to do pretty much whatever we want. This cave has such a rich history, both underground and above ground, that it's we don't lack for topics to discuss. But Floyd, for me, Floyd has been one of those things that has kind of captivated the attention of people that come into the Mammoth Cave area. And it's a story... Really, had he not got trapped in Mammoth Cave, we may not be a national park. His entrapment led Congress to kind of sit back and look and go, okay, maybe we need to do something. And because the state of Kentucky had been trying since the 1900s to get this as a national park. But with the cave wars going on and, make, and designating this as a national park, we start to see a lot of those caves are in what would become the national park and with that it kind of helped squelch some of that interesting because here you have a guy 37 years old 38 years, years, old, years old and he gets trapped and it captures the attention of a nation because i think there's something really scary about getting trapped in a tight place and days upon days and everyone is working toward your retrieval and it doesn't have a, a good ending. No, it does not. And when I say it captivates the, like a, a crowd still, this was one of the first big news stories of then young radio. And Congress would stop every day just to get the updates on the rescue efforts here. And it also captivated the attention of a young boy at that time too who kept asking his family to come here and being told no. And later on, you know, this, this gentleman was very successful. Someone tried to take his life. They were unsuccessful at that. 
And as he's sitting back, he's thinking, I can now go to Mammoth Cave. I'm the president of the United States. I can do what I want. What president? That was Ronald Reagan. And inside the cave, he, from what I've been told, he sang the, the death of Floyd Collins and he knew it. He knew it, word for word. For more historical perspective, I met up the next day with another park ranger, although the idea to do the interview inside the cave came a little too late. Well, what better way to spend a hot, muggy Kentucky day than in a cave? And to tell me all about Mammoth Cave National Park is Autumn Bennett, who is with the Park Service and an interpretive ranger here. Well, thank you for meeting with me uh, on this hot day. We're sitting in a picnic area under the shade and it's just a beautiful day not counting the heat and what's the temperature today do you know? I think 100 in the shade. Yeah 100 in the shade feels like it. Well tell us a little bit about the national park and the cave that you have here. Mammoth Cave National Park was established in 1941. Prior to that this area was home to over 500 families, little farming communities, uh, churches, general stores, being a native Kentuckian, we always say this is Kentucky's gift to the world of people having to give up in most cases the only home they ever knew so that we can share this place with the world. How many miles of the cave are available for exploration by tour groups? We currently tour roughly 14 miles of cave. So a lot of our tours overlap, but that's 14 miles of the known 412. In order to enter Mammoth Cave, you have to be on a guided tour. Even the self-guided tour goes a quarter of a mile in the cave, but there are guides down there. I often say we have over 400 miles for you to get lost, and we would never know where to look for you. So I think a lot of times people are surprised that you can't just sign a sheet and go exploring in the cave. And so on, on guided tours, we have a, a lead ranger and a trail trailing ranger try to keep the group together and just make sure people are safe. Lantern tours are my favorite to lead. I love the nostalgia of seeing a cave with a, a flame, with a lantern, you know, like those folks in the 1800s would have, would have seen it. It took brave souls to go into the cave in those early days. It did. Uh, even braver 5,000 years ago, though, I have immense respect for the, the first explorers, the late archaic early woodland Native Americans who explored Mammoth Cave with burning torches, burning sticks. As I, I would go a lot further with a lantern than I would go with a torch. <laughs> That's right. So to me, it's interesting driving around the park or walking around the park that we are on top of the cave. Are we on top of the cave right now where we sit? I am not 100% sure, but potentially. The visitor center, uh, the hotel, 
does sit above some cave passageways. Uh, the cave is basically in a hill. And at the bottom of the hill on the surface is the Green River. And at the bottom of the hill inside the cave are the underground rivers that carve out passageways and are tributaries to the Green River. As I like to say, eons ago, rain figured out it was easier to go through the hill to get to the Green River. Rather than cut valleys, it made caves. One of the first economic uses of Mammoth Cave by modern people was the mining of saltpeter for the making of gunpowder during the War of 1812. That industry gave way to cave tourism and the subsequent competition among various landowners who were lucky enough to own the land above. Saltpeter mining, uh, that was a very lucrative business. Uh, during the height of the war, saltpeter was about a dollar a pound, which was really good money. Uh, after the War of 1812 ended, trade resumed. You could get saltpeter cheaper from other sources. And so the, the owners of the cave uh, started looking elsewhere. And it turns out people started knocking on the door, wanting to see a big dark hole on the ground. And they thought, well, charge money to see that. So cave tourism here has always been fairly lucrative. Uh, Mammoth Cave being the, the first in this area. Uh, later, other privately owned caves joined in with that and reached a pinnacle in the late 1800s. Uh, this area is what is known as the, the cave wars. So people were fighting over tourist dollars. You had several other privately owned caves that were hoping to cash in on, on just people wanting to see, see these places. So tell me about the history of the slaves that worked here and helped develop what would later become the National Park. I hesitate to say that the history of enslaved individuals began with Mammoth Cave's use uh, as a saltpeter mining operation uh, in 1809. I feel like America itself was built on an intertwining of lots of cultures. And as people moved west of the Appalachian Mountains, you know, they brought enslaved individuals with them. But as far as the earliest record of enslaved individuals working in Mammoth Cave would be for that saltpeter mining operation for the War of 1812. Not a lot is known about that time period. Uh, records, if they were kept, have either not been found or have been destroyed. We have references that maybe 70 men worked total in the, the mining operation. Imagine the majority of those would have been enslaved individuals. They also had to have food and shelter and definitely the behind the scenes on the surface isn't as well known either. Most of the attention gets paid to the saltpeter mining operation itself. Afterwards, the families who continued to own Mammoth Cave and uh, give cave tours. It was the first from 1816 up until 1838. It was a family business of sorts. You had the Shacklefords, the Gatewoods, the Millers, and their sons would lead people through. 
but also imagine that it, it wouldn't have been uncommon for them to, if, if they had enslaved individuals, which I believe they, the, the Gatewoods and the, I know the Gatewoods did, that they would have been in some capacity on, on cave tours, definitely on occasion, maybe you know, carrying fuel, uh, lanterns, food. But as far as a, a guiding tradition, that started 1838. Uh, Stephen Bishop was brought to Mammoth Cave by Franklin Gorin and tasked with learning the cave routes and exploring the cave. Uh, he would often explore with visitors, uh, supposedly crossed bottomless pits with a man by the name of H.C. Stevenson, according to first-hand accounts. He went on to discover the underground rivers in 1841. In 1838, he was also joined by Nick and Matt Bransford, they were leased from a fellow by the name of Thomas Bransford. Do we know that once slavery ended, those men continued to work in the cave doing tours? They did. Uh, there's stories that Nick started selling eyeless fish, preserved one in a jar for $1.50, if I remember correctly, and three dollars for a live one. <laughs> and he was saving up money to buy his freedom, which Stephen had already had by that point, because Stephen was freed by Dr. Cron's will. Dr. Cron died in 1849. Dr. Cron had purchased the cave from Franklin Gorin in 1839 and continued to enslave Stephen uh, and Lee Snick and Matt. So Stephen got his freedom in 1856. He got to live free almost a year. Uh, he died in 1857. Matt and Nick continued to guide here. Nick was the longest guide of the, the originals, uh, Stephen, Nick, and Matt. Nick continued to guide, gosh, into the 1880s. I'm thinking he died around in the 1890s. Tell me about the CCC and the development of the park thanks to the help of those workers. And then also about the black Americans that I understand had a camp, uh, were in the CCC. One of the camps was all black. In 1926, the original tract that Dr. Cron owned was purchased and uh, the National Park Association got the ball rolling on having this area designated as a national park. By the 30s, sometime during the 30s, they had acquired enough land for the National Park Service to take authority. And so you had park rangers moving in, uh, setting up offices and, and such. Uh, that also allowed the Civilian Conservation Corps to be able to come here and start making this look like a national park. They tore down homes, churches, barns. They rolled up all kinds of like barbed wire fencing. Because this was land that the federal government had acquired, and so right. that's why they were clearing these old structures out. Right, and planting trees. Uh, they also constructed miles and miles of trail, both above surface and in the cave. There were four CCC camps. Uh, one was all black. Inside the cave, they 
built miles and miles of trail in which they would just take rocks and kind of lay down rocks and gravel, uh, take cave dirt, pack on top of that, all by hand. There's no machinery involved at that time. And all in very low light, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, up here, 100 degrees, doing the same thing uh, for the miles of hiking trails we have. We always tell the story that they dropped their sledgehammers and pickaxes and left their tools of, of labor to, to pick up tools of war to go fight in World War II. Tell me about the archaeological work that you are doing here. Next month, uh, the cultural resource manager here is going to excavate where the hotel stood. The original hotel that was built and expanded on by Dr. Cron in 1839, burnt in 1916. And in the 1930s, well, maybe late 20s, another hotel was built. And then uh, I think sometime in the 60s, that one was condemned and they tore that down and, and built the, the version we have now. However, soon our current hotel is going to get a facelift and some uh, modifications and remodeling. And there's going to be an expansion of the parking there. And before all that takes place, uh, we're actually able to excavate around the foundation of the 1930s hotel. And we're even hoping to catch a little bit of the first hotel. Uh, it might overlap some, so uh, who knows? We're, we're very excited to see what's, what's beneath the surface. We, we know the cave's down there, but what's between the, the cave and the, and the surface? Uh, most of the archeological work that the park has done in the past has been in the cave and has been focused on the late archaic early woodland Native American explorers. And Mammoth Cave itself is an archaeological treasure, and that's often overlooked. But what Mammoth Cave offers here is, is because of it being a dry cave, plant remains are preserved. Um, I can take you right now into the cave and show you a gourd that was brought in four or five thousand years ago, three, four, five thousand years ago, and it looks like it was brought in yesterday. There are cane reeds. Um, we found sunflower heads, woven slippers that are so well preserved that people can actually replicate the, the weave pattern, the, the twisting and the twining that they did. And those things would not exist if it weren't for Mammoth Cave and those folks leaving that in Mammoth Cave during their exploration because it would have rotted out here on the surface. So Mammoth Cave offers another piece of the puzzle to the subsistence patterns of the late archaic early woodland Indians. They were uh, actually starting to farm. The, the first archaeology was, was focused on you know, the prehistory and it's, it's really neat to give some attention to the, the historical side of things. Sure. I also understand that shark teeth and fossils have been found, which is difficult because sharks are mostly cartilage, right? They are, except for their teeth. 
uh, which is why you find so many when you when you think say a shark fossil it's usually a, a tooth the different members of limestone here uh, some are very fossil rich and they've started finding all sorts of species of ancient sharks that's kind of the the big push in science right now is all this uh, fossil collecting and looking for fossils and I guess in a sense it kind of sums up what I love about Mammoth Cave is you know people often ask me if I ever get tired of going in the cave and I answer honestly some days it's like anything else you'd rather be somewhere else but no one ever get tired of going in the cave because if I look each and every time I will find something I've never seen. Significant work has been done over many years to map out and understand this immense cave system. So the wonders above and below the ground here are yours to see as well. For The Traveler, I'm Lynn Riddick. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. With the end of the federal government's fiscal year just a week away, we'll keep you abreast of whether the national parks will remain open if there is a government shutdown. Check the National Parks Traveler website for that information. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.